Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Parliament may have been in recess this week. MPs have been taking a breather after a frenetic two months of speculation about Boris Johnson's leadership, but the political action hasn't stopped. While attention is focused on the unfolding drama in Ukraine, behind the scenes, the Labour Party and the Liberal Democrats have been quietly carving up the map of the UK political battleground ahead of the next general election. Welcome to Payne's Politics. Seb's taking a few days off too, so this week it's the equally alliterative Parker's Politics with me, George Parker. Later, we'll be looking at the Ukraine crisis and the way that Johnson's government is handling it with our top FT team, Gideon Rackman, who's at a very tense Munich security conference this weekend, and Laura Hughes. But first, a very significant story about the next election featuring Labour and the Liberal Democrats. Not since the days of Paddy Ashdown's ultimately unproductive courtship of Tony Blair in the 1990s, Blair's massive 1997 majority blew any talk of Lib Labory out of the water, have relations between the two opposition parties looked so promising. The idea of the progressive parties of the centre-left working together is nothing new, of course. This was David Steele, the former Liberal leader, talking about his Lib Lab pact with James Callaghan's Labour government in 1977. And it is up to us to argue forcibly and convincingly that a Liberal holdover government is both healthy and desirable and that the electorate should seize the opportunity to increase our influence and representation in Parliament. Fast forward to 2021, and last year saw the Labour Party take a conscious decision not to campaign hard in two by-elections where the Lib Dems were the main challengers to the Conservatives. The result was two big wins for Sir Ed Davies' party in former Tory Blue Wall strongholds, Chesham and Amersham and North Shropshire. This was what Davy had to say about it. We showed in the Chesham and Amersham by-election at the beginning of the summer that Liberal Democrats could be Conservatives even in true blue Buckinghamshire. And I've been arguing that there are a lot of seats uh, in the blue wall across the south of England and indeed in other parts uh, of the north. Well, this week I reported with my colleague Jasmine cameron Shileshi how Sir Keir Starmer, Labour leader, has taken a good look at the electoral map and concluded that his party should fight only minimal campaigns in the 30 top Lib Dem target seats. Labour will stand a candidate in those seats, of course, but the Lib Dems will effectively be given a clear run against the Tories. In an informal understanding with the Lib Dems, Davies' party won't campaign hard in Labour target seats. The end result, they hope, is more Lib Dem and Labour seats and the removal of Boris Johnson's 77-seat Commons majority. To consider the theory behind this and whether it will work, we've brought together Jasmine cameron Shileshi, the FT's Lib Dem watcher, and Ben Bradshaw, the Labour MP for Exeter and electoral reform campaigner, who has long argued the case for closer cooperation between parties of the centre-left. Jasmine, first of all, recap exactly what our story this week said. 
So we're essentially at this point where neither Labour or the Conservatives can ignore or dismiss the Liberal Democrats. They have a proven ability to focus all their attention and resources in certain areas and win seats off Conservatives. So Keir Starmer is obviously looking at that and thinking ahead to the next general election. And he's quietly told colleagues that Labour needs to focus its resources and its manpower in seats that it thinks it can win, even if that means stepping aside and allowing the Liberal Democrats to potentially take those seats. And so what we reported on is this informal pact that will see, hopefully, Labour focus all their resources on those sort of red wall seats, whereas the Liberal Democrats will focus their resources on the sort of blue wall seven seats. And the main idea is that by combining forces, they can effectively force Johnson out of power. Ben, this all sounds like common sense from both parties' point of view. But under Jeremy Corbyn, didn't Labour fight very hard against the Lib Dems and effectively split the anti-Conservative vote? Well, I think the atmosphere was different. But in practice, this has always happened, George. I mean, the Labour Party has always focused its resources and its volunteers in its target seats. I think the idea under Jeremy Corbyn that there would have been anything more formal than that was probably unthinkable because, I mean, a lot of voters voted Tory who might otherwise have voted Lib Dem because they were terrified of the prospect of a Corbyn government. And I don't think those sort of relationships would have been possible under Jeremy Corbyn with the Lib Dems. But also the Lib Dems have moved back from uh, the position they took when they were in government with Cameron, the sort of the orange book Lib Dems are on the sidelines now. There's a much more commonality of policy, and I think an approach and certainly will be at the next election. So I'm not at all surprised this sort of informal pact is is being more formalised. It makes eminent sense. And I'm really pleased it's happening. So Ben, is it the case that the Liberal Democrats normally do better when there's a less threatening, a more acceptable to Middle England Labour leader in place? Oh, absolutely. And we saw that under Tony Blair, and we saw the opposite of it under Jeremy Corbyn, where there was no doubt that people who traditionally voted Lib Dem and, uh, you know, many of them pro-Europeans, but they were so terrified of the Corbyn government that they actually voted Conservative in 2019. And of course, that risk has now gone for them. So yes, it it, it is more difficult under a a far-left leader, and it's much easier now under a more uh, centre-left one like Keir Starmer. And Jasmine, how is this seen from the Lib Dem side? Traditionally, the party likes to claim it's equidistant between the Conservatives and Labour. But this will be seen as a clear taking of sides with Keir Starmer, won't it? Yeah, and I think any informal pact is always going to feel slightly uneasy. So all parties want to have the space to govern on their own terms. No party really wants to have to engage in pacts or backroom deals to get into power. But I think there's an understanding that actually this isn't like the 2019 election where we saw the Lib Dems make these really bold promises of, you know, we heard Joe Swinson was going to be the next prime minister and they were going to stop Brexit. The party sort of moved away from that and they're taking quite a realistic stance and recognising that actually they can be part of the narrative that sees Johnson removed from power. But I think there will be that concern among Liberal Democrat MPs, Liberal Democrat campaigners, that actually having too close an association with Labour will really make it harder to win over some of those sort of conservative leaning voters in their heavily remain seats that they're trying to target. And on the flip side, I'm sure Labour haven't forgotten the coalition years, which saw the Liberal Democrats basically prop up the Conservatives' austerity policies. So I think it's an informal pact of sort of convenience and both parties being realistic. But I think they're just sort of assessing the situation and thinking how best can we topple this 80 plus seat majority, really. Yeah, Ben, I was going to ask that. Don't Labour activists hate the Lib Dems with a vengeance? 
Well, it depends where. I think if you look very carefully at the actual map of seats, there are very, very few seats where both Labour and Lib Dems are in contention. And actually, Labour Party activists are, contrary to popular misconception, generally quite a sensible lot. They want to maximise our number of seats. They want to minimise the number of Conservatives. In my region, the South West, for example, you know, it's always been better for Labour in the South West when the Lib Dems have done well in some of the rural areas in North Devon and Cornwall and always been better for the Lib Dems when Labour has done well. So I don't think you get that sense uh, everywhere. And I think it's faded since Nick Clegg. Yes, there was a lot of animosity towards Nick Clegg and his decision to go into coalition with David Cameron and then things they did in government. But I think at local level, the picture is often, often very different. And, you know, I, I personally have always got on very well with local Lib Dems and particularly Lib Dem voters because most of them vote for me. Now, Jasmine, if this works and the Conservatives lose that majority at the next election, what prospects do you think there are of the two parties working together in some form in a hung parliament? So obviously we're quite far away from a general, but these discussions are sort of happening quietly. And there is a sense that Davies Party was obviously stung by its experience in coalition. I don't think any Lib Dem member really wants to see another coalition government, even if that is formed with Labour. But I think there could be a sort of confidence and supply deal where there's a sense of the Lib Dems agreeing to support Labour, but on a conditional basis. I don't think we're at a point in 2010, for example, where Nick Clegg just wanted to show that the Lib Dems could be in power and getting into power was an end in itself. We have someone like Davey who's, he was in the cabinet, he was in the government, and I think he's going to be more strategic. And so I think if there is some sort of deal between the two parties, I think the Lib Dems will really be focusing on constitutional reform and in particular electoral reform and trying to find a way to get Labour to agree to look at or reassess how voting's on the country to ultimately benefit them in the long term and to sort of ensure that the Lib Dems aren't always this fringe party that never have a chance of getting into power. They want to start looking at how people are voting and the systems that are in place. So I think that will be their priority. And I think they will be very strategic. I think they'll recognise that if it is a case of a Labour Party having to rely on them, they're going to have the upper hand and they're not going to want to waste the opportunity. But Lib Dems at the moment are sort of very much keen to stress that we're far away from an election and that they don't want to have any formal packs. But these conversations are definitely happening underground and electoral reform is one of the things being considered. That sounds good news for you, Ben Bradshaw, because you spent most of your political career campaigning for electoral reform. Do you think we could be coming to the moment where this comes to the top of the political agenda? And do you think the Labour Party could ever deliver it in any circumstance? Well, I'm more optimistic about that, this, George, than I've ever been. I mean, if you look at what happened at last year's Labour Party conference, 80% of constituency parties backed a motion on electoral reform. It was scuppered by the unions, two of which have since changed their policy. So yes, I can imagine it. And you could imagine quite a lot of common ground between us and the Lib Dems going into the next election, not just on electoral and constitutional reform, but clearing up the sleaze and corruption of the Johnson years, fixing his disastrous Brexit deal that's doing so much damage. So yes, I think there would be areas where the Lib Dems could support us in government. I I agree with Jasmine. I think they're going to be very cautious or careful about entering any sort of formal coalition as they did with the Cameron government, which with such disastrous consequences for them. And do you think there's any prospect of Labour going into the next election promising electoral reform? Well, I hope so. Uh, well, let's see what happens at this year's conference. If the unions uh, shift and, you know, Keir himself, I think, has been on record as, as, as sounding quite positive about electoral uh, reform, And I think there's a growing feeling in the country that there is something seriously wrong with our constitution where you get these 
governments that are pretty much out of control without any checks and balances. They can do what they like on a minority of the vote of the popular vote. And certainly when I talk to young people in my constituency, they cannot understand. We're, I think, the only country in Europe, apart from Belarus, that still operates a first-past-the-post system. And as I say, the sea change in opinion in the Labour Party in recent years, uh, in party membership, uh, in the unions, and indeed among MPs, has been huge. And I expect that to grow as the next election approaches. Ben Bradshaw and Jasmine Cameron Shalesti, thank you very much. Next, onto the story which has dominated global affairs this week and reverberated through Westminster, the crisis in Ukraine. The title of the recent Netflix film Munich, The Edge of War, was eerily prescient as the world's diplomatic and military leaders gathered at the Munich Security Conference to take stock of the Russian build-up on the Ukraine border. Liz Truss, Britain's foreign secretary, was in attendance, but she stopped over in Kiev to deliver another stern warning to the Kremlin. Russia must think again. Despite their claims, Russia's military build-up shows no signs of slowing. There is currently no evidence that their forces are withdrawing. And we need Russia to step back from the brink. They must take the path of diplomacy. Last week, I delivered a strong message to Sergei Lavrov in Moscow. I told him directly that Russia must respect Ukraine's sovereignty and engage in meaningful talks. If, do they, if they do not choose the path that we have laid out, I made it clear the price that Russia would pay. Meanwhile, Ben Wallace, the UK's Defence Secretary, was trying to explain what he meant when he said there was a whiff of Munich in the way some in the West appeared to be approaching the Ukraine crisis. This was Wallace on the BBC's Today programme. What I said was if... Russia invaded Ukraine, there would be a whiff of Munich, because what we know in Munich in 1938 was, first of all, the story that's often talked about is the appeasement, which was, uh, you know, where Britain has not been in this process. To discuss the crisis in Ukraine, I'm joined by Gideon Rackman, our chief foreign affairs commentator, who's at the Munich Security Conference, and Laura Hughes, our diplomatic and political correspondent. So Gideon, what's the mood like ahead of the event? It's really tense, actually. I mean, I'm talking to you shortly before the actual discussions have started, but, you know, in the airports coming in, the accreditation centre, there are a lot of, for me, familiar faces knocking around. And if there's any humour, it's of the sort of gallows variety. I think people think something bad's coming, to be honest. Of course, Munich's highly symbolic as a location for this meeting. What do you make of Ben Wallace's comments about the whiff of Munich being in the air? I think it's quite telling that he felt the need to clarify them. I mean, you know, when one first hears a whiff of Munich in the air, it's appeasement you think of. And those comments did not go down well in Berlin, Paris, etc. Because I think the assumption, the initial assumption was that he was saying that, you know, the French president, the German chancellor who'd been to Moscow are, are trying to buy Putin off. They want to some way of finding a, a route in which Ukraine becomes neutral in the hope that that will satisfy the Russians. Now, that may not be a completely wrong analysis, actually, but it was a bit tactless, particularly when everyone's trying to emphasise Western unity. The clip you played was Wallace rowing back a bit and saying, well, actually, he was referring to Munich in another sense, that meaning, you know, an attempt at peace that failed. I think the one thing that's going for him 
is that there's so much happening. Uh, you know, each day brings a kind of new notch in the tensions or another peace mission or something that it might be forgotten quite quickly. But I, I did speak to somebody actually who said to me that, you know, if Ben Wallace hoped that he would become Secretary General of NATO, a job that's now open, those comments may have, you know, put the nail in the coffin of those particular ambitions. Laura, what does the Ukraine crisis tell us about the way that Britain is seeking to present itself on the world stage? If you talk to officials in the Foreign Office, they are really trying to seize on an opportunity here to A, ally Britain with America. I think before Biden came in, there was a real feeling that the French would be more closely aligned, that Macron would be Biden's man in Europe and Boris Johnson desperately trying to show that actually he is the man that the Americans should be talking to. And it's been really interesting to see UK, US putting out a lot of intelligence in the public domain about what they expect Russia to be doing. And I think that is these two countries trying to show that they are ahead of the game here after all the criticism over Afghanistan and a failure to predict the fall of Kabul in the way that it did. I think these two are trying now as countries, as allies, to show Putin they know more than perhaps he thought they did, but also that they're united. And also, too, I think Liz Truss is really keen on emphasising that Britain is prepared to work with Europe, wants to work with Europe on security issues like this, and is is really yeah trying to put itself out there, say this is global Britain, trying to be a serious player, even though sometimes the Russians don't quite take us as seriously as perhaps we, we might like. It's quite clear that the British side have been trying to stress the deterrence angle in their talks with Moscow over the diplomatic angle, which I think you'd be fair to say that the French and the Germans have been pushing. Do you think that's successful or does it just make us look like we're, we're an echo chamber of what Washington's doing? Yeah, I, I think we've definitely taken a different stand and some in government have been a little bit privately scathing of the French approach. It does, I think, reflect a desire to follow the Americans and to show that we are at one with Biden more than anybody else. Whether or not that goes down well is another question. But definitely, we are less about appeasing. We are less about giving Putin anything. If you talk to people around this trust, they say that even if there is no invasion of Ukraine, the West cannot bow to any of Putin's demands, that it's not over, even if war is averted, and that this is a time, a real litmus test Liz Truss referred to it in a speech on Thursday of the West resolve here. And Gideon, if that's right, and we are aligning ourselves more with the US position on this, what does that mean in terms of Britain re-engaging with the EU on security and foreign policy issues in the years ahead? It's a little depressing in a way that we're talking about what are essentially secondary issues. (laughs) Russia may be about to start the biggest war in Europe since 1945. And if Whitehall really is thinking about this, all this is a way of us looking good, you know, getting close to the Americans, even if it, you know, in the context of our relationship with Europe, these are secondary considerations. The point surely is to get the policy right. I hope that 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 is weighing quite heavily and that it's more of a coincidence that as it happens, the way the British traditionally have approached Russia is quite hard line. The British, you know, going back to the Cold War, have had a pretty tough, view of Moscow. And that's got a lot tougher in the last decade because of incidents like the attempted murder of uh, the Skripals in Salisbury, 
and so on. My concern is not really, you know, how this looks in Washington, but how this looks in Moscow. My worry is, you know, listening again to that clip where you had Liz Truss saying Russia must know that it will pay a very high price, is that Russia has looked at the price and said, OK, we'll pay that because we're not going to fight in Ukraine. They have had a time to prepare for sanctions. You know, there may be some reinforcement of NATO's eastern flank. I mean, I think the biggest price they'll pay is really in Ukraine itself. They, they may have miscalculate horribly and end up in an insurgency war that goes very badly wrong for them. But the West deterrence may not be deterring. That's the problem. Gideon, can I just ask you a, a sort of slightly left-field question on this? But I don't remember there ever been a situation where there appears, as you've just described vividly, a sort of a build-up to a possible war in Europe. And the apparent phlegmatic approach of the people in Ukraine, the people who might be the subjects of this invasion. I mean, it's extraordinary, isn't it? The fact that we haven't seen the kind of panic buying or general panic that you might expect in this situation. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I'm, you know, it's a while since I, I've been to Kiev. I was there the last time Russia invaded, and maybe that's got something to do with it. They, you know, they have actually been at war, albeit not in the in the West and not in the capital city since 2014. You know, there, there's 14,000 people have been killed in eastern Ukraine, Crimea was annexed. And I think that the other thing that may account for relative phlegmatic attitudes is what their own government is saying. And one of the odd things about this whole crisis is that Biden is standing there, Jake Sullivan's standing there saying, war is going to happen. You know, it's, it's, it's very, very close, more likely than not, imminent. And Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, is not saying that. In fact, he occasionally grumbles and says, look, you know, they're hyping this. It's too much. Uh, it may be that they don't believe what their Western allies are, are telling them, or it may be that I think the Ukrainian government thinks, you know, Putin might achieve quite a lot of what he wants simply by creating a war scare. If he destabilizes Ukraine, if he collapses the economy, if he creates this panic that you're referring to, then Ukraine becomes a non-functional state. Then maybe Zelensky falls and a more pro-Russian government comes to power. Yes, now, Laura, this is a UK politics podcast, so I'm going to ask you a parochial question here. It's obviously speculation about the future of Boris Johnson as Prime Minister. He's got to fill in his questionnaire for the Metropolitan Police about the parties in Whitehall by 10pm on Friday. It's noticeable that during the Ukraine crisis, Ben Wallace and Liz Truss have become the two most popular Conservative cabinet members among party activists. Do you think they are both realistic prospects as future leaders of the party, and particularly Ben Wallace, who I, on the last survey I saw was actually top of the charts. Yes, although I think Ben Wallace has actually ruled himself out of any leadership contest. I think he gave an interview with the Sun. <laughs> but it's a tricky one for Liz Truss because she got quite a lot of negative press when she went out to Russia last week and supposedly got her regions wrong and Lavrov, her, her counterpart, suggested she was deaf in the meeting and wasn't listening to him. So it doesn't always play out well for her to be at the forefront of this crisis. And actually, back home in Westminster, the, the, the Prime Minister is actually talking a lot more about efforts to tackle dirty money that's going through London. Because one of the big points here is that we're going out and, and talking about new sanctions regimes and playing hardball with the Russians, when in reality, a lot of politicians have been pointing out the fact that for years and years and years, London has been open 
for a lot of questionable individuals with ties to the Kremlin to come and invest their money in this country. And therefore, some of the language that's been put out there, especially by Liz Truss, has been hollow, according to some of her critics. And also, I think, again, back to the American point, I think the Americans have been concerned at our record of so-called dirty money coming in. And this week, you're seeing huge efforts being made by the government to try and look as though they're getting on top of this. So we saw tier one investor visas, these so-called golden visas that allow international investors to come and eventually reside here and invest their money here. And Priti Patel, very keen to get stories out there about her cracking down on this, Boris Johnson talking about it. Now, there have been conversations about the fact that there is legislation that hasn't really been enacted on or there's been a complete lack of focus on this. But I think the kind of political front at home, that is where the focus has been and Boris Johnson trying to look as though he is taking it seriously. Do you think it's going to make any difference? I don't... (laughs) When you speak to lawyers and, and experts on this, the general feeling is that there aren't going to be Russians sort of shaking in their boots at the threat of these sanctions because... There have been tools at the government's disposal for a very long time to get on top of this, and we have chosen not to. Some would say that that is a political choice. And Gideon, finally, you'll see Liz Truss in action in Munich over the weekend. You've seen plenty of foreign ministers come and go. What do you make of her debut on the world stage? And I have to say, you know, she starts with fairly low expectations, given the fact that many people in Britain for many years regard her as a bit of a political lightweight. Do you think she's changing people's perceptions at all? Too early to say. I mean, I, I think that, you know, she came into the office at about the toughest time you could have. As, you know, Laura said, her her trip to Moscow didn't go well. And I didn't think that was noticed, actually, outside even the UK. I remember, you know, before the meeting took place, a pretty senior ex-British diplomat saying to me, I do hope the Foreign Office know what they're doing here because it's all set up for Lavrov to humiliate her and or try to humiliate her. And after I sort of emailed this guy and said, well, you did tell me. And he just emailed back and said, oh, dear, oh, dear. You know, and I think to the extent it registered in the outside world, yeah, it wasn't a great debut, but things are, are, are moving very fast. And, you know, she hasn't made any mistakes of principle. Uh, Lavrov is a bit of a thug. And the fact that he didn't take to her, well, you know, tough in a way. I think the broader question is, You know, does she have much to contribute? It seems to me that at the moment, as you would when you're starting a new job in the middle of a crisis, she's sticking pretty firmly to the script. And the real work is not probably being done by her or by Ben Wallace. It's being done behind the scenes. There may be points later where politicians actually have to make some really key decisions that officials can't make for them. And at that point, you know, the politicians, Boris Johnson, uh, Liz Truss, Ben Wallace, will be very, very important. Uh, so I'm not saying they're, they're, they're irrelevant, but, you know, at the moment we're in the kind of public posture phase. I don't think anybody expects Liz Truss to make the diplomatic breakthrough with Lavrov. And a final word on Ben Wallace. You know, I was uh, interested slash amused that Laura and you were talking about him ruling himself out of this. Because I mentioned I had this conversation I'd had where somebody said, oh, well, he's messed up his chances of being NATO Secretary General. This was at a dinner where a couple of Tory grandees were, and one of the Tories said, yeah, but he obviously wants to be Tory leader now, not NATO Secretary General. I said, but I thought he had ruled himself out. And they just laughed and said, you know, 
there's no politician who isn't secretly thinking about being prime minister and that soundings are being taken by Ben Wallace's people. Gideon and Laura, thank you for joining us. And that's it for this week's episode of Payne's Politics. If you like the podcast, we'd recommend subscribing. You can find us through all the usual channels to receive episodes as soon as they're released. We also love positive reviews and ratings. Payne's Politics was confusingly presented by me, George Parker, and produced by Anna Dedda and Howie Shannon. The sound engineers are Breen Turner and Jan Sigsworth. Until next time, thanks for listening. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.